Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off with, we're joined by our panel to discuss issues of interest and stories in the morning newspapers. On one side of the table, well, nobody does recession quite like Colin McCarthy. He produced the McCarthy Report on board SNP, dealing with the fallout of the financial crisis. He has a day job as a lecturer in the School of Economics in UCD, and he's also a columnist with the Sunday Independent. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the rebel in the room, Brendan Ogle, Long-standing trade unionist, of course, very active on right to water, right to change campaigns, and and uh, obviously one of the leading uh, protagonists of the left in the country. And it's a great pleasure to welcome for the first time someone to make sense of all of we'll be discussing a former Fine Gael senator, TD, and minister. She was railed against by the INTO Minister for Education, so she's going to talk to us, Minister for Social Welfare, as it was then. But Gemma Hussey, it's a great pleasure to see you here. Let's just flick through the front pages of today's Sunday papers. The Sunday Independent has a new aspect of the Trevor Dealey case you'll recall disappeared in December 2000. A dig currently occurring. Trevor murder. Ruthless gang now suspected. Lots in the papers about the OCI and Pat Hickey. Am I the only one in the country thinking he hasn't a vestige of credibility and it's a disgrace that he wasn't compelled to appear before the Oireachtas Committee? But the take on today's papers, the Sunday Business Post, OCI board did not approve Hickey deal with Rio ticket seller. Legal cost to hit a million. Uh, and there's more in the mail on Sunday. Brazilians want 10 years jail for Hickey. A lot of people feel he'll never darken a Brazilian court door in future, but they're saying that the leading Brazilian prosecutor wants him jailed for 10 to 20 years uh, and that they'll go for an international Interpol warrant if he doesn't turn up. And finally, the Sunday Times uh, returns to the issue of... 12th of October, Budget 18, Donoghue's first budget to pledge tax cuts to 2020. It seems it's all smoke and mirrors. There's not going to be a one-year budget, but a three-year budget because they've so little money to give away. Well, of course, the week that was in it, um, we've been talking on this programme, trying to grapple with the Brexit outcome. Well, the Brits published two papers, one on the future of Britain and the Customs Union and the other on the future of the land border. Uh, Colin McCarthy writing about this today, about chlorinated chicken and whatnot. Um, I've said and I repeat, and I want you to just deal with me effectively, that what we want is a continuation of free trade. What we want is common travel between Ireland and Britain. Britain ticked all these boxes, and yet everyone derides Britain. Surely it's all Europe's fault. Yeah, well, I, I read through the two documents that were released last week, one of them on Tuesday, about Britain's approach to Customs Union, which is about tariffs and stuff like that. And the second on Wednesday, which was about the border here in Ireland. Uh, Both of them are vague, aspirational, and both reveal that the division within the Conservative Party in Britain 
as to how Brexit is to be proceeded with, uh, that division has not been resolved. There's a very good article today in The Observer by a, a fellow called Vernon Bogdanor, his professor of history in the University of London. And he's a nice phrase that caught my eye. He says, the British government want a soft landing from a hard Brexit. Uh, and you can't really do that. They are still formally committed, and it was repeated in these documents during the week, to quitting the single market, which is about non-tariff barriers. The single market is about, you, you know, my rivets are the same as your rivets, and I can sell my rivets in France uh, without fellas saying these rivets are not the right length and all these non-tariff barriers that used to be there. Uh, if you quit the single market, they can come back. Uh, and the customs union is about tariffs. Uh, the British are formally committed to quitting the single market because they feel they must in order to control immigration, and they are uh, uh, inevitably quitting the customs union because only EU countries can be members of it. Before we came on air, uh, Ivan, you were asking me about external arrangements that countries can have. Like Turkey. Like Turkey. Uh, can we not uh, have a Turkey solution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of a chlorinated chicken solution, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, Leif Radker, when he was in Belfast, he gave an important speech at Queen's University there a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he explicitly mentioned this arrangement. Turkey is not a member of the European Union, so it's not a member of the Customs Union, uh, but it does have a formal arrangement with the European Union about tariffs and stuff like that, and loosely. Uh, you don't have to pay tariffs on stuff coming into uh, Europe and Turkey or vice versa, except food. Uh, it doesn't cover agriculture, but on everything else, there's no tariffs. Secondly, the Turks have agreed that they will have more or less the same kind of tariffs against the rest of the world. And that's what a customs union is. A customs union is a group of countries that have no tariffs uh, uh, amongst themselves and agree that they'll have the same tariffs against the rest of the world and that means the truckers can move around inside the customs union and they don't have to fill up any flipping forms or uh, get stopped by fellas in pig caps. However, the Turkey arrangement doesn't work like that. Uh, on the border between Turkey and Bulgaria, which is the quick route up into Central Europe, there are huge queues every day and the reason is because Turkey is not in the single market. So you don't know that the stuff that's coming in from Turkey meets European specifications and requirements and safety rules and the diddly do. Uh, and it is not a frictionless border. So the Turkey solution isn't a solution? Uh, 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 let's be clear. The Brits keep going on about, we want a frictionless border in Ireland. That's not a policy, it's a slogan. Mm. The, 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 the border between Turkey and the European Union is not a frictionless border. My point, Gemma, is the ones at the end of the day that are wanting to enforce a hard border is not the Brits, it's the Europeans. Well, I have enormous sympathy for anybody trying to um, uh, decipher what was in those two British documents uh, during the week. Um, I feel that the it, it is extremely alarming that we have Britain in such disarray they hadn't. They weren't prepared for this. They haven't a clue how to deal with it. it they're they're talking. You know, as you said, it 
in slogans without any thinking behind it. Um, but it's very alarming for Ireland that that should be the case. Um, and I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, that David Cameron has done the worst disservice to both his own country and several other countries. But we um, are where we are, as Brian I know I, we are where we are. Um, so I don't know. How, I don't know what the solution is. Does I don't know if anybody here. I don't know. No, if surely the, the the solution is that a unique UK EU treaty has got to be negotiated because of where we started from. But how do you do that? And will the other 20- you break the rules? But will the other twenty seven countries agree to that? I mean, there are, there are sensitive points right across Europe, and you know they'll be watching very carefully what's going on. And also, since Britain is so paranoid about um, immigration, um, what are we going to do about free movement um, in Northern Ireland? Well, Leo said in Belfast, we would not do anything to put the land border in place. Do you agree with him? I do, yeah. But I think I don't know how it's going to be achieved. Brendan? The problem may well be that that Leo Varadkar doesn't have to do anything to put the land border in place. It will happen anyway. Um, I come from, as you know, Dundalk, which could become the equivalent of what Colm is discussing there in relation to the Turkish-Bulgaria uh, scenario. Uh, and there are a lot of concerns. Um, I also represent members in Northern Ireland um, in terms of my trade union role. And the first concern is let, is we do not have an administration in Belfast uh, looking after the interests of the citizens of Northern Ireland at this crucial time for the citizens the of Northern Ireland. The lack of the power sharing, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the and, 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 and I, I don't want to portion blame there, but um, I think it's long past time that the DUP and Sinn Féin start, stopped pointing fingers at each other uh, and showed some leadership on this. And I don't think the DUP... Uh, whose default position seems to be... Do you think the two governments are doing enough to push them together? Well, I'll come back to the two governments. Uh, Clearly, the DUP arrangement with the Conservative Party in London um, gives the DUP grounds, it would seem, uh, for thinking that they have they have some, you know, easy access or or, or clear access, which, which... But I think their role is is to walk through Stormont on behalf of the people in Northern Ireland. And that's a real concern. point taken. So, So the second concern I have then... Um, British society is riven on this issue and has been riven on this issue for quite some time. The Tory party have always been riven on Europe. Um, the Labour Party um, do not have, did not have a, an emphatic position on the Brexit uh, debate. Um, and society itself, I spend a lot of time in Britain, society itself, whether you look at that from a gender, from an age or from a geographical area, there are divisions all over the place. Whether you look at it from a race, from immigration, no matter what lens you choose to look at this issue through, British society is riven. Um, The real disappointing thing for me here is that since the Brexit debate, and it's now well over a year, well, just over a year, there has been no, that I can discern, inward analysis within the European institutions themselves as to what have they done and what might they they do to prevent one of its biggest um, members and maybe maybe future members. Because clearly some of the people I discuss, uh, and they, as you say, would probably be on the left, trade union people, that sort of people, um, Communities have been abandoned and, and, and the European Union, to, through my eyes and ears, has moved away from social Europe 
into a Europe which seems to put the concerns Glo- of, of banks and finance capital above citizens right across Europe. It's manifested itself on this occasion in Britain. But I think unless the European Union addresses that fundamentally, and now is the time to address it, um, it will manifest itself in other major countries. And there have been concerns in relation to the Netherlands, in relation to France. So it is a really, really big problem. I, mean, I think listening uh, to Brendan talking about the problems and the attitudes, um, I've, I've been developing a, a kind of a feeling over recent times that in fact Brexit may never happen. I think that there may well be more and more groups um, in Britain um, you know, joining those who, who voted Remain but also uh, joining those who uh, you know, now see um, God, you know, what do we do this for? This was an ill-thought-out thing. It's going to affect more and more people. And I'm beginning to think that the, one of the reasons for the slow peddling that's going on is that they were hoping it won't Well, there's happen. no doubt the CBI and the TUC are lobbying Whitehall like hell yeah. to, to, to say, cop on here. And, and if, they had a, if they had a credible Labour Party um, in, in Britain, if, they, if Jeremy Corbyn either was replaced or became a stronger Jeremy Corbyn than he is now and adopted uh, a Remain thing for the next election. Um, it could be a winner. It could be. Okay. Well, I don't, think the, I don't think the crisis can be laid at the hands at the feet or the hands or any other part of Jeremy Corbyn, to be honest with you. Um, but Labour is divided. I think British society is divided and Labour is no more uh, no, the north or of less England, divided. Uh, Labour and London, Labour are two different views on this. Uh, well, look at the whole of society. I've gone through every possible lens you can think of is divided on this. And I think what's necessary is a more generous approach. From, I wouldn't rule out what Gemma is talking about, by the way. I wouldn't rule out a review of this. But I think in order for that to happen, a necessary condition is there to be a more generous approach from the c- European c- Union c- to c- reform. And c- that seems a very to immediate the aspect of this has been that on the date of the referendum, uh, sterling relative to the euro is about 76, 77 pence. Uh, last week is 91 pence and Morgan Stanley had predicted parity. Uh, we've seen everything from mushrooms to used car imports to particular uh, perishable goods going to the UK. This is potentially devastating. I bet talking about lots of jobs going. What, what's your sense of the currency relationship while all this mm. uncertainty exists and the perils for Ireland? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, we decided to join the euro back in 1999, knowing that the British uh, had decided not to. Uh, So the instability that has been there ever since in the exchange rate between the euro and sterling uh, uh, has continued and been reinforced by the Brexit decision, but it was always there, Ivan, and there had been periods in the past, as I'm sure you recall, and the exchange rate went the right way from our point of view for a spell and everybody's smiling. And then it turned around and went the wrong way. Uh, and it's a serious worry for the, the very large number of small Irish firms who do most of their trade with Britain on top of all, uh, uh, all the other worries. Uh, but if the British decided tomorrow that they're not going to quit the European Union, they're not in the euro. So, so that exchange rate volatility problem uh, is really a problem separate from Brexit, has been made more acute just recently about Brexit. Just to pick up on, on, on what Ben was saying about the splits in British society and so on, uh, I agree with him about that. I, uh, I think the country is uh, divided. Uh, the, the Labour Party, though, wasn't until 
relatively recently. You know, Le- Labour was a pro-Europe uh, party. It was divided on Europe in the 1970s, actually, and, and there were a lot of people on the trade union side worried about free trade and job losses and all the rest of it. Uh, and Hal Wilson had a job in his hands to, to keep the party together. Uh, but Labour then became kind of a pro-Europe uh, uh, party through the 1990s. Uh, and in the 1970s, it was the Conservatives who were the pro-Europe party. Uh, one of the great ironies is that the single market, which Britain is now departing, uh, was in considerable degree an initiative of Margaret Thatcher, uh, who wanted all the non-tariff barriers gone and all the rest of it. Uh, and there are Tories now who are happy to describe themselves as Thatcherites and bearers of the flame, who think that Britain should get out of the single market, which was her handiwork to a degree. But 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 one of the long-term things, uh, and maybe Gemma as a, as a former politician that have an insight on, on this, one of the things that intrigues me is that it looks to me as if the Conservative Party might eventually split on this. And, and the big British political parties, because it's a two-party system, they tend not to split as much as ours do, you know. Uh, here Nobody we've got as much as we do. Well, we, we've got multi-seat <laughs> PR, and you can always Especially get one seat. Left. <laughs> uh, uh, you can get one seat out of five, and you end up with more political parties than is good for anybody. Uh, yeah, yeah, is it? But, but 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 the British system really does encourage two parties, big parties, and it encourages them not to split. Yeah. Uh, and it's 1920s is the last time when when the Liberals split and disappeared. Um, so, uh, but it just looks to me as if the Tory party actually could split on I, this issue. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and um, you, you But UKIP have gone away. The big thing that drove... You, 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 like, you castigated uh, David Cameron, but the fact of the matter is the Tory party was under threat on a flank from UKIP. Well, UKIP is now gone. That's why he promised the I, referendum. I, I think he completely overestimated absolutely. the problem with UKIP. Um, he had. He was also threatened with his own uh, anti-Europe uh, people. Um, I think he, you know he overestimated both uh, challenges com- completely. But I, I never saw the, uh, Britain so divided as it is at the, at the moment. Um, unfortunately, Theresa May uh, it turns out to be a weak person with a questionable judgment. Uh, although when she did announce that she was going to have that snap election, there was no commentators criticising her. They all said... Decisive. Clever. Well, she called called a snap election and then she uh, put off polling day for seven weeks, which wasn't very clever. She lost half a million votes every week. Exactly, but who who criticised her? All the the pundits were all in favour of it. Anyhow, that's the the point. But the interesting thing is, Labour gained 14% and the BBC did a survey of 30,000 people and found... What was the big issue, retrospectively? It was Brexit. And it was the softer Labour line mm. on Brexit that actually it wasn't the NHS, it wasn't investment. That was what won them the votes, Brendan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and in terms of the reflection on the Labour Party, you know, one of, one of my my British friends asked me, you know, well, who, who, if you could put it down to one person, and of course you can't, it's a trite argument. You know, I think Tony Blair has a lot to do with Brexit. Because I think the, the direction in which Tony Blair brought the Labour Party had the result in the middle and the north of England in effectively casting aside, or at least they felt cast aside. Uh, and, I, and I spent some time in, in, in Durham um, where mining communities were just abandoned. And they felt, they felt that the Labour Party no longer spoke for them. 
Uh, and so they looked towards some of them looked towards UKIP and uh, and, the, and these these these, uh, these other um, reactionary forces that emerged. I think actually Jeremy Corbyn has tried to be a moderating force there. He's yeah, in a very difficult the position. Says Corbyn is a Trotskyite closet lever. Well, I don't believe Jeremy Corbyn is a Trotskyite. I know I know a few. I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn is a Trotskyite. Look at look at at the end <laughs> of the day. No, I'm not. I'm mean, certainly not a Trotskyite, as you know well. <laughs> You're a Stalinist. <laughs> I forgot. Brendan, what do you think of Jeremy Corbyn? I think Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, is uh, an inherently decent human being. Yeah. Um, I think he 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 is a he is a pacifist. He is he has voted against every illegal and immoral war that he has faced in in, in Parliament uh, for for decades, and I think that he brings to British politics a very necessary degree of of decency. Um, which has a chance on the back of Thatcher, on the back of Blair, where finance capital and all that just rode roughshod over people and communities. He has a chance to reconnect with people in a humane way, which he did in the British general election, particularly with the under 25s. Um, Obviously, he's not the future in the sense that he's, you know... Mm. Colm, you're even a Corbynite at this stage, aren't you? I I, I was intrigued uh, after the election when it transpired that uh, the younger voters who had not tugged out in the referendum in great numbers to, to vote for Maine, uh, but they did tug out to vote for Corbyn. Uh, and the BBC uh, sent a, a camera crew down to uh, Guildford. And there's a couple of universities, the University of Kent. And, and, uh, am I getting it? Yeah, I think it is Guildford. Anyway, the, the, they sent this camera crew off they interviewed all these students and most of them had voted Labour and they talked about idealism and so on. And eventually they found one who told the truth, who said he was sick of paying university fees and he wanted to pay nothing. Wanted free education. <laughs> and of course, uh, Corbyn had said no, no more university fees, which are nine grand a year in Britain, which is one, one third of the cost. And then he had said that if you've taken out a student loan and you're struggling with repaying it, sure, we'll, we'll see what we can do, you know, and so on. So there's nothing that incentivizes idealism like, like, like <laughs> ah, free money. very cynical. Well, okay. where's your idealism? <laughs> well, we're going to be speaking about <laughs> Irish education, uh, universities, and whether it's all fit for purpose next. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. My panel today, Brendan Ogle, Gemma Hussey and Colin McCarthy. Well, lots of chat in the budget, pre-budget stuff. Uh, the Sunday Times goes with the story to say that there's only 300 million available for tax cuts and spending increases in total uh, for Budget 18. Uh, but that because there's 7 billion euro of fiscal space over the next three years to 2020, what we're going to get is a presentation that does a multi-annual approach. A lot of people saying, Brendan, that with the problems of sterling and Brexit, this is a time to be cautious. Other people saying this is a time to invest in things like housing. What do you say? Well, first of all, in terms of the budget, um, in general, the general conversation, it, it, it dominates too much of it over natural discourse. I think it goes on for months. Uh, and look, at we have a massive housing crisis. I'm not saying anything there that anybody listening to this show doesn't know about. 
Um, I was involved in something last Christmas, um, Home Sweet Home, where where the the government of the day, and I'm not going to slag people off, but we were given assurances um, that there wouldn't be people in in hotels by the end of uh, the summer, by by the end of June, actually. Um, And that, you know, house building would be underway, public housing, social housing, call it what you will, that there would be vacant building taxes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Housing, then every three months, the homeless figures come out and they're getting worse and worse and worse. So I don't think we should be talking about tax cuts in this budget at all, to be honest with you. You know, for the amount of uh, tax cuts are are, are good if the money is there to do it. Um, But we have bigger needs and I think we have an absolute housing emergency and emergency is the word and whatever fiscal space there is um, to, to coin that 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 sycophantic term um, be it 300 million 7 billion over 4 years whatever it is and the, these figures can be played around with anyway um, we need to go to the European Union and put our hands up and be honest and say listen you see your fiscal rules we've got a housing emergency and the only way of addressing a a housing emergency is to put into use vacant buildings that are there and they're all over the city and many towns and villages around the country Uh, you do that by putting a a tax on on them them lying lying vacant and then we are going to need a major investment strategy to build houses that are affordable Gene Carrigan is writing about this today what's he saying? He's he's writing about two two brothers um, who were in a tent um, in the Phoenix Park um, 14 people sleeping in tents in the Phoenix Park and um, they got told um, I'm not sure whether it was but the people who managed the Phoenix Park or Dublin City Council um, that they would have to move on um, they went looking for somewhere else to go there was no space in the hostels obviously they can't get a home they, 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 they left a note with their tent which had all the worldly possessions they went to Dublin City Hall 7 o'clock in the morning the security guy came along threw them out of there in the rain and I say Dublin City Hall I mean the doorway now um, went back to the Phoenix Park. Dublin City Council had taken their tent, um, and you know we have we have people now who are unemployed, employed who are homeless. Um, people aren't allowed to camp. But isn't it a national scandal that we're talking? We talk about recovery out one side of our mouths, and we're talking about people sleeping in cars down in down in Sandy Mount and 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 um, out in, out in the edge of Clontarf, out in Sutton. We're talking about people in tents in the Phoenix Park. Just walking from Abbey Street across here, people who don't know where the studio is, it's near St Stephen's Green Centre. I, I passed countless people in doorways this morning. When I say countless, I passed upwards of a dozen yeah, people. Yeah, this morning this I happened morning. to see more people in sleeping yeah, bags yeah. than I'd seen and, over and, recent and, weeks. And the, minute, the minister, who of course is now gone and has nothing to say on this, Simon Coveney, told us all last Christmas that at least the 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 the, the, the sleeping in sleeping in doorways and the emergency accommodation would would be gone. And then of course, if you're a tourist. And this is, I've been in my bonnet about this, Ivan, if you let me get it off my chest. Um, if you're a tourist, um, and, I, and there's nothing wrong with tourism, we need tourism. We've got tourists arriving in Ireland and, and, and other cities around the world. And they're, they're going into houses where they used to go into hotels called Airbnb. Um, and the people who could be living in those houses are being hidden away. Uh, in emergency accommodation in the hotels and in cities it's not just an Irish phenomenon in cities like Barcelona and San Sebastian this has reached such a critical uh, mass at this stage that there are protests against tourists so the whole the world has been turned on its head we need to go to the European Union before the budget say listen hands up we're not the best boys in the world anymore we've got a housing emergency and we're going to be looking at your rules and we're going to be building houses uh, sorry for the rant but uh, it no, really no, is the a Gemma, serious there, there are two opposing views is that first of all the legacy of the crash 
is so bad in relation to public housing and social housing that we need to disregard budget and fiscal rules. Another view is saying, look, this is a, a sensitive time. We must have a balanced budget. We still have a large debt. Which side do you go with? Well, I would say, I'd like to say that I don't think that the housing problem is going to be solved by giving money in the budget. I think it's a structural problem. It's all sorts of uh, difficulties about getting houses, about uh, empty houses. It's 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 a whole load of blockages in the system which need to be unblocked. Um, but the people l- in the tent can't afford m- to house themselves. But there's an awful lot of money being poured into this, but it can't, you know, people, people keep saying... Uh, it'll be all right in three months' time. Three months' time is an awful long time for somebody living in a in a hotel room. But it will happen, only it's desperately slow. And as you say, Ivan, it's a legacy of not doing it way back when we should have been doing it. Um, but I don't think that uh, uh, it's a, it is... So basically, I'm saying I don't think it's a money problem. I think there are problems like... Uh, private property problems uh, uh, empty houses leaving aside air and B&B empty houses all over Dublin um, who, which belong to you see the reaction last week when there was some talk about um, older people being helped to le- rent their houses um, while they're in nursing homes and there was a an, an, bit of an outcry immediately against that you're, you're bullying old people um, so there are blockages and difficulties in the system which need to be sorted out and that's where I worry about the lack of energy that I see and now I think Owen Murphy seems to be an energetic man um, has the government got the will to tackle these blockages I hope they have uh, Colin McCarthy um you know, hardline economists like yourself say, look, the biggest issue is a balanced budget to ensure that we get the debt ratio down. Other people are saying these social needs are so great they must come first. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, uh, I think it really would be quite a good idea this year to have no budget at all. Uh, and Do I'm nothing about housing. Hold on. Uh, I, I would challenge listeners to remember what was in last year's budget. And as a fiver a week. Uh, as Brandon was saying, people spent July and August and September uh, waffling on about, I wonder what's going to be in the budget, and we demand this and you demand that. Uh, the budget was small-scale stuff, uh, a few bob for everybody, but n- nothing that anybody uh, can remember, and it didn't address any serious long-term problems like housing. Uh, in, in, in the medium term, we're going to have to get the public finances sustainable again the way we did the last time we screwed it up. And we screwed it up in the 1980s when there was a fellow from Wexford, I think, was a member of that government. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember. That's, that was the Rainbow government, superb government. Yeah. Carry on. But anyway. I, don't, I don't want to interrupt you. Carry yeah, on. anyway. Uh, uh, and, and, and what happened through the 1990s was not that the government ran massive budget surpluses every year or endless austerity ran. They got the budget deficit down to zero and kept it there, uh, or in or about zero, and kept it there for a decade, uh, during which time the economy grew uh, uh, reasonably well. And at the end of that decade, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, we had the polyfinancial position back in reasonable nick and then they went off and screwed it up again. Uh, it wasn't screwed up, incidentally, by the European Union. 
uh, or by fiscal rules, it was screwed up by Realtors Naherden, the government of Ireland. Uh, and, and what I'm bothered about is that, that, that there is a permanent constituency in Ireland for repeating mistakes. Uh, once a mistake is about seven or eight years old, you can afford to forget about it and go off and, and make it again. Uh, on, and specifically, on, what is that mistake? Uh, pretending that the sustainability of the public finances is not the critical element in sovereignty. That's what sovereignty means. It means the government is sovereign and has choices. And those choices evaporated just five years ago, six years ago, when the government couldn't borrow a penny and we had to go to the IMF for the first time since the state was founded in 1920. And do you believe and, housing... And, and, and that's sovereignty now, okay. that's what it's about. Gemma made the point that throwing money at public housing yeah. or housing is not the solution. That is yeah. a very vexed point. Like, I've had Peter McVary and different people yeah. who say that housing is a right and that the yeah. public expenditure is critical to solving that. Yeah. Uh, th- th- there are things that the government could do short-term that would help, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to those in a minute. But we need to be clear that housing policy in Ireland, first of all, it's mostly a Dublin problem. In most parts of Ireland, you can afford to buy a house off an average salary. This problem is mostly in in general Dublin area and a couple of other places around the country. It's not all Dublin, but it's mostly in Dublin. Housing policy in Dublin has been screwed up by Irish governments, not by the European Union. Uh, And it's been screwed up for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, It may be hard for people to get their brains around this, but until the mid-1970s, the price of a house in Dublin and the price of a similar house in the provinces was the same. People now think it is um, uh, a fact of life that a a reasonable three-bedroom semi seven or eight miles outside Dublin should cost double or treble what the same house costs in Tralee or in Sligo. It wasn't always So what's like the that. Dublin solution? Okay, the Dublin solution is reduce the price of houses in Dublin from the ridiculous levels they're currently at to half those levels. That's the solution. And the way you do that is by saying we will zone every wasted acre around the city, and that's a lot. Uh, we will provide uh, proper services via the local authorities, and we will provide planning permission. I have a pal who's that's, a... That's bil- what I meant by blockages. Yes. You're talking about unlocking I've, the blockages. I have a, I have a pal... Uh, this is about politics and not about money. Mm. Uh, I have a pal who's a builder, uh, and he has, up in the Meads direction, he has land that is zoned and serviced, and he wants to build houses. And he can buy bricks, and he can buy glass, and brass doorknobs... All of these things are available. But he can't get planning permission. And the people who are objecting to planning permission are all the local residents, led by the local Fine Gael TD. Now, that category of problem has to be addressed. And, uh, and we, have to say, okay. we have to say to people who live out in the edge of the city, you're living in a house and you think it's worth 500,000 quid. <coughs> you're wrong about that. It's not. It's worth half that. I want to get Brendan here. The the issue, it seems, is red tape, not money. Well, it's all they're all part of the issue. Uh, and Colm is right, of course, in saying that the, that the, that the start of this problem was about 30 years ago. I grew up 
in a publicly built house. A lot of my peers, I'm nearly 50 now, a lot of my peers and friends um, did so as well. What we had then was competition. Here I am citing competition at you. What we had was competition between houses built, publicly built houses, and the private sector building houses, which always existed. What happened then was the state opted out of building public housing. Council houses. So the state removed the competition. They handed it all over to the private sector. The private sector is not a person. So what, what happened? Only one thing could happen. And it has happened. Prices go up and up and up and up and up. And, and it's exacerbated by following. And no one government did that, by the way. It's exacerbated then by current government policy. Because every time they try to, to incentivize, um, what they actually do is add to the cost of the housing. So what's necessary here is a combination of, first of all, using whatever money is available in the budget, going to, to, to say we are going to build public housing. That doesn't mean giving it to a developer, giving public money to a developer to build more expensive houses. It means building public housing. It means creating employment, construction jobs, maintenance jobs. I remember when councils had, had electricians, had painters, had, 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 had plasters. Um, economies, local economies were thriving because people had jobs, there were sustainable jobs and you know what? It worked. Ideology is at the heart of this housing emergency and until we grapple with that and until we say you know what, we can keep our ideology for this area of the sector, that area of the sector, the other area of the sector, the other area of the economy, but people need a home and we go to the European Union and say we need to break the rules, we're building public houses. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. Chewing the fat or the cud this morning with Yates on Sunday is Colin McCarthy, Brendan Ogle and Jim Hussey. Jim Hussey, I am old enough to remember when you were Minister for Education. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I wonder, for the week that's in it, leaving cert results on Wednesday, CAO points tomorrow, have we become so fixated with going to college that it actually isn't good for the class of 2017 because one out of six is going to drop out of college and a lot of people, you know, have parental and other pressures to get a university degree when in reality it doesn't improve their prospects of a better life or make them more employable. Well, I go down that road a certain extent with you but I think the majority of the young people who are going to be anxiously seeing what places they're going to get tomorrow morning from the CAO uh, announcements um, I think the majority of them um, will be fine I think that they they have worked hard they want to get good jobs they like the areas they've chosen I think the majority but Would they not be better off in an apprenticeship? But I, well, that's what I'm going to say that I think they we have over the years allowed that whole area of specialist training apprenticeship uh, all of that to go by the board undervalued it and completely neglected it unlike for example Germany which has a, a very good education system a highly uh, trained workforce great apprenticeship schemes well paid jobs um, fulfilled young people 
Um, so in Ireland, there is a debate ongoing about that um, in the education world, I, I understand. And they are, um, you know, doing something with at the edges with um, with the point system, um, giving people wider choices. But also I, I hear that Richard Bruton is doing a great work in terms of shifting emphasis over to the whole um, skills apprenticeship area, which is absolutely But sorry, that is in the context of craft trades. You know, you hear about plumbers, electricians, but surely banking jobs, insurance jobs, they could all be done through apprenticeship as well. Well, why not? I mean, there's no reason. Why not? Maybe you should be thinking about going back into politics yourself. I've had so many (laughs) careers. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not go there. Brendan, what's your take on it? Like me, you did not go do the Leaving Cert. You got on with life uh, because of necessity. What's your take on this overemphasis, from my point of view, of academia? Because of necessity and a teacher I didn't like, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I went into an apprenticeship um, when I was, I think, 17, um, which we just discussed. At that time, there was a thing called ANCO. The yes, under 25s yes. are the people waiting for their results tomorrow. Won't know anything about that uh, for the places tomorrow. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot. Um, you know, it, it helped prepare me for the world, I think, just as much as, 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 as anything else I might have done. Look, there's nothing wrong with people. Uh, of course, there isn't educating themselves and, and well done to them all and good luck to them tomorrow waiting for their placements. My own daughter was in that situation last year. So so I know it's a nervous time. But a degree in theology, Greece and modern languages, for God's sake, I have, great, I have great sympathy for the under 25s in particular in this country. I have great sympathy and, and worries about them. I have two daughters myself in that bracket. You know, I was slightly better off than my dad. My dad was slightly better off than his dad. And I That's think the next history. generation yeah. or the generation coming along, um, I worry about their, their job prospects. Not that they won't get a job, but the quality of the job, the rate they're paid, it's permanency or otherwise. Um, permanency is the wrong word. Security. Um, whether it can, whether they can have a pension, as we've just discussed, whether they can afford to buy a house. I really, really worry about these issues for the young people. And, I, and, and I'm not sure the education, Jenna knows a lot more about it than me, um, but I'm not sure the education system is fit for purpose in that respect. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure either um, that we're on a track where we're going to have anything other than a very divided society where, where more and more educated people or at least to keep getting told they're the most educated uh, people we've ever had uh, are finding it harder and harder to make their way in the world. I think they've, they've faced really challenges. I can only wish them well with it. But unless there's some fundamental change to how we structure society and create real jobs uh, and distribute wealth, I think, you know, they've got an uphill battle on their hands. Uh, is our education system fit for purpose, Colin? I, I was intrigued the last few days, uh, first of all, with cringe-making statements by politicians congratulating all the students on passenger exams. I mean, come on. The, the, the uh, officials in the department on the morning of the re- leaving, so they put a thing in front of you, a script, to say what you were to say when you went on Morning Ireland yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it's it's yeah, off yeah. the air. Yeah, yeah it, it's kind of painful. But anyway, uh, but, but one of the things that has happened in Ireland, and it's happened actually uh, around the world, is called grade inflation. And by fiddling around with the quality of the courses and the degree of difficulty of the exams and then marking them a little bit easier, uh, you end up with everybody. It's like the egg and spoon race when you're 10, everybody gets a prize. Uh, What's wrong with that? I'm coming to that, uh, Ivan. Um, The UK system has 
slowly transmogrified over the last 40, 50 years into one in which an amazing percentage of students get first-class honours degrees. Mm. There was a study uh, recently that went through the historical data. First-class honours degrees used to be for Albert Einstein, although Albert didn't get a first-class honours degree, but there you go. Uh, but you needed to be Einstein material mm. to get a mm. first-class honours degree. At one university in Britain, uh, 21 or 2 percent of the folks got first-class honours degrees, and the others were chased off because they didn't. Uh, this is called grade inflation. And I couldn't help remembering uh, Flann O'Brien or, or Miles Nagopolin, who was onto this problem 40 or 50 years ago. Somebody he knew had only got 25% in the Leyland cert and had got a clip in the air from the mummy, as you would. Uh, and Miles suggested that Maybe we could mark the leaving cert out of a million instead of out of a hundred. And then you could go home <laughs> to your mummy and say, well, I didn't do great, but I got 250,000 marks, and that's a lot. Uh, and, and, and this is what So what's the insidious side of great inflation? Is it that we've dumbed down uh, university courses or what? Uh, it's both, actually. Uh, the, the, we're now pretending that everybody is doing much better in exams. So you um, want to be hard-assed with youngsters and... I think so you're. Don't you, I think you're doing the system down a bit there. I, I, I think the Irish education system and the kids that come through, yeah. most of them are well educated. I'm not certain. So compulsory yeah. Irish, too yeah. much religion I'm, I'm is all good for I, youngsters. I, 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 I'm actually not certain about that, Gemma. Uh, uh, and, and hear me out on this just for a second. They also abolished about twenty years ago, I'd say, in the National University, the distinction between honours and past degrees. So all degrees are now honours degrees. And there is pressure uh, in the universities and I'm sure in the other third level colleges to teach not at the, the brainiest students but at the average or a little bit below the average. So I think there's been a bit of dumbing down in course content and a lot of people... Ge a general dumbing down? Yes. Do you think I'll yes. know about uh, uh, that? Yeah, well a lot of people who work in the system uh, would privately agree with that mm -hmm. and, and publicly say whatever they... And do, is, that, the is that to the, the damage the of the... Because we see hear. ourselves dropping down the league tables Ooh. in terms of the top 200. Is that the consequence of that? It is. Um, it's also but, funding, but you know, the, the, the universities, uh, the classes are far too big they don't have a proper tutorial system. There's True. Well, it doesn't help if the people don't turn up to lectures. It's time to have a bit more of a stern approach to these kids, the well, Celtic yeah, Cubs. Yeah, well, I, I was out, uh, as it happens, in UCD uh, during the week uh, out, out in Belfield, and it's like visiting the wreck of the Hesperus. There wasn't a... You could actually park, can you imagine? Nobody there. The Irish universities close up around the end of May and they will surface again in, 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 uh, in a couple of weeks time. The, anybody who ran a factory that had cost a few hundred million quid to build and didn't bother running it for three mm. months of the year got fired. Uh, just down the road from here is Trinity College, a very valuable piece of plant uh, and it has no night school. There is no better placed institution in Ireland, from a transport point of view, to run a night school than Trinity College. And they closed it in the late 1960s, Gemma. Why did they do that? Because UCD was moving out to Belfield and they were afraid 
that they would have loads of students coming in looking to do oh, I want to take life. some texts I want to take thank you Gemma Hussey you wrote a letter to my late mother 35 years ago reassuring her that it wasn't compulsory to make her tomboy daughter which is me Lucy in RD wear a school skirt in primary school you have been an inspiration to me since and here's one for you uh, Brendan Ogle the more we heed left wing clap trappers the worse the homelessness housing situation gets because the outrageous demands they make. Such an unconstitutional rent control, uh, security of tenure, etc. are making landlords' ladies stampede out of the business, where it is increased supply that will solve the problem. How do you reply to Sean? Well, I think Sean needs to put put his ideology aside and look at some logic. It is not the left that has created a homeless crisis. It is absolute apparent greed of the sectors that he relates to in terms of not building houses and then the extortionate rents that are being charged and the absolute lobbying that goes on to prevent and, and oppose governments regulating it. We need more regulation, more public house building and less greed in the sector, Sean. I'm going to give you the last word. Brendan Ogle, uh, of course, of Unite Trade Union and the right to change most things. Uh, Gemma Hussey, uh, a commentator and former Fine Gael minister and Colin McCarthy, no longer of UCD, but all knowing in the Sunday Independent. Thank you for being my guests. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.